earlier this year on sabbatical, uh, my family and I got to visit London. Uh, it was a great trip, our first international trip with the kids, uh, my very first time to London. Uh, we went to this place, if you've been to London or maybe you've seen pictures, you know it's called the Tower of London. It has a castle, has a royal palace in it, it also has a, a jewel house. And it was right before the coronation of Charles and Camilla in April, and so the crown jewels were still there. Uh, they weren't taken away for the ceremonies yet. Uh, once uh, certain ceremonies like coronations or uh, baptisms happen, they come and use it. And I was drawn, as you see here on the screen, uh, as I was walking, and it's this, this room. And first of all, here's a tip, by the way. If you're going to go see the crown jewels, um, when you're entering into the, the, the whole area at first, I don't know what to call, else to call it, go to the crown jewels first. Because if you don't, you'll be waiting an extra line with, after waiting a long line. So run there first, and you'll see this room. And it's actually not very long, uh, but you see heavily guarded jewels. And this one caught my attention, the Sovereign's Scepter. Uh, it's got a cross on the top. It was made in 1661. Uh, that massive diamond you see uh, kind of in the center of it there was added in 1910. It's 532.2 carats. It is the largest uh, diamond in the world. To see the crown jewels, you have to wait in that line to get in, you have to wait in another line to get in, and people from all over the world come to look at these jewels, come stare at these things from all over the world. Very fascinating. And it's fascinating to me as an American, and I saw many other Americans there. Because think about how our country got founded and started. We were tossing off this very monarchy, saying, no, we don't want you to rule over us. But still, many, many Americans coming to look and wonder at these jewels that represent a monarchy. Got me thinking how interesting it is for many democratic people to come look and wonder at a British monarchy. Why is there such a draw to kings and kingdoms and the like? Why afterwards the coronation was broadcasted all over the world and why many people, even in the United States, would spend time to look and watch with wonder at the coronation of Charles and Camilla. Why are so many of our stories in our culture steeped in kingdom theology? And they are. Think about every Disney movie you've ever watched. It's always about a king, a princess, a prince, some dead parent usually <laughs> in every single Disney movie because that's the most emotional thing a kid can feel. And so that's the start. It draws them in at the very beginning. Why do all little children want to be a version of princes or princesses? And I think this wonder with the monarchy, this embedded theology into our stories represents that even in a broken world, there remains a lingering desire for the way that God intended things to be, for his kingdom for his reign, for us to truly be princes and princesses he always intended you to be. We're in a place in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus instructs us to pray, your kingdom come. To help us pray this authentically, I want to ask and answer two questions. What is God's kingdom? And what does it mean to pray, your kingdom come? What is God's kingdom? We don't typically use kingdom language except for in stories. And so we don't use it in everyday conversation. And so it seems foreign, strange to us. But kingdoms, if you think about it, they're, they're about a way of life, a culture, 
They're about an administration and the way that things are done. Let me try and make a connection to something that's still going on in our culture that has a deep connection to kings and kingdoms. We don't have kings in our culture, but we have coaches. And that's a deep connection, actually, I see there. When coaches come into a new team, especially a professional sport, it's not a democracy. They come in and they function like a king. Especially if you're trying to reboot a, a dying team, a losing team. They're not elected by the players. They come in and they establish their culture, their dominion, their priorities, their rule. I remember reading 11 Rings by coach Phil Jackson, who coached in Chicago and LA is the most winning coach in NBA history with 11 championships. And if you read his book, it's like a, a treatise on what it means to rule a kingdom. He establishes dominion, a culture, a rule. One thing that Phil Jackson instills on his team immediately, the most important thing he'll say in his kingdom is love, brotherly love. It's mandatory on his teams. He spends time guarding what it means for his players to love one another, to exhibit love for each other, protecting it, because he says, when you have love on your team, you will win. Coaches set up culture, attitudes, policies, vision, priorities. And when you have a good coach that comes in, they're unified and they play to the best of their ability. When a bad coach comes in, you see that their rule, their reign, their vision, their policies do not produce the best results. We have some coaches in our church who coach at high school basketball, like Jeremy and Curtis, and I can think and imagine. I've seen Curtis coach, and I can imagine what kind of king Curtis is. I've not seen Jeremy coach. I don't know, Jeremy is up there probably. But I, knowing him, can imagine the kind of kingdom he reigns in the team at Galileo. We may not start our address in the Lord's Prayer as king, is addressing God, but we address him as father, but he's no less a king with a rule, with a reign, with dominion. We see throughout scripture, this king is not oppressive. He's not a dictator. He's not coming to crush, but he comes loving for the good of creation in his glory. When you think about kingdom, we have to understand that this is one of the main themes that kind of sinks the entire scriptures together. There's many themes that you can think about that really primarily show up in one testament or the other. But this is one of those themes that connects both the Old and New Testament. It starts the beginning of the Bible. It goes all the way until the end of the Bible. It, you see the kingdom. You see a king. Now, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, maybe you're wondering, well, where do I see kingdom and king? That word king and kingdom aren't used. But think about how sovereign kings rule. How does a king rule over his kingdom? He doesn't primarily do it by his own hand. He does it by his word. He establishes a decree. He declares something and it is done through his leaders. And that's what you actually see when you read the creation story. We may not think about it this way, but it is a, a demonstration of a king and a kingdom. God is ruling. He speaks and it's done. He's not a bad king. He's a loving father, but this king blesses his creation. He speaks and he creates the world. He declares and people are made and these people, we are made in his image. And even the way that he makes us in his image reflects kingdom language. Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And God blessed them 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply like many of our children <laughs> we see in our church and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. You see this connection? To be made in God's image means that we are to reflect his kingdom reign and rule throughout creation. I call this princess and prince theology. We are, that's why we long for that because we are made in his image meant to reflect that throughout creation, blessing it further, being fruitful and multiplying, extending his kingdom. That's why we have a deep connection to those stories about kings and princesses. Because we have a king who made us in his image. We are to be royal family members, spreading this blessing throughout his rule and kingdom. Of course, we get to Genesis 3, and you see that because humanity, Adam and Eve, representing us, we reject God's reign, we reject his rule, that shatters our relationship with our king. His reign brings blessing. Our rejection of him brings a curse. But still, even in the rejection, he doesn't give up on us. We see it in Genesis 3, in the midst of that curse, verse 15, that there will be a child who will come, who will crush the serpent, who will restore God's kingdom. And you see throughout the Bible, breaking in of that kingdom and the keeping of that promise again and again and again. You see it through the people of God, through prophets, priests, and kings, eventually pointing to God's own son, his promised king the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15. That's why all of Jesus' sermons, you, you, you look at the beginning of the Gospels, you see this kind of summary of Jesus' sermons. He always says, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's not actually only what he said, but primarily what Jesus preached was the Father's kingdom. You see throughout the Bible, that breaking in, you see that ultimately in Christ. When Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand, He's not declaring a, a new spiritual path for your life. He, he's not giving you a newfound purpose for your life. He's saying, no, this kingdom that was supposed to be from the beginning that we rejected, it's coming. It's here. And Jesus establishes it. He starts it. He inaugurates it. He comes not to crush, but to save. He comes as a king not to put down a rebellion, but to save rebels. And that's the gospel we see him declaring. That's why the kingdom being declared is good news because he doesn't come to crush us. He doesn't come to establish a military rule. He comes to save rebels, to reverse the curse of sin, save man from the rebellion and all the curse that comes from it. To come to those who rejected him and bring them back into God's kingdom. Sometimes in our zeal, and I'll give you some nuances about the kingdom. I think... When you think about the kingdom, maybe you've done some Bible studies, maybe you've been a Christian for some while, you, you think you have these categories of the kingdom. And I think I want to clarify a few things here. Sometimes in our zeal, I think sometimes we confuse our role in the kingdom. Even think about the Jewish people uh, as they were spending time with Jesus, as the disciples are spending time with Jesus. They still got it wrong up until the moment that Jesus ascended to heaven. Look at Acts 1, 6-7. And so when they, the disciples, come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He's very gentle with them. I mean, at this point, I'm like, I would be imagining he's very frustrated. I mean, you guys still don't get it? I've already died and resurrected. You still don't get it? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. They still thought 
that the kingdom was primarily earthly and primarily had to do with them and their people regaining position and power. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. It's not going to be fully consummated until the new heavens and new earth. That's a technical term uh, you see in theology. The kingdom is already, but not yet. It's both present and future. But I think it's important to understand this nuance of the kingdom because this is where churches and Christians get it wrong and we commit some really heinous things in the world on behalf of the kingdom. We, we begin to think that we establish the kingdom of God or somehow that our role establishes what Jesus is supposed to do. And so we begin to think by elections, we can establish God's kingdom. So if we just elect the right person, then God's kingdom will be here. Nothing you see how even in the people of God, they do try and do that with kings and they get it wrong and it only wreaks more havoc. And you can't bring in the kingdom with education, humanitarian, good works. Those are all good things. And kingdom values should influence how we participate in this world, but we don't build his kingdom. You notice throughout the verbs of the New Testament, it's always declaring the kingdom because it's coming through Christ. He does it. It's so lofty, so massive, we can't do it. Only the Spirit can do that. That's why if you look at the Bible again and again, you see this kingdom is received by grace. You declare it's good news breaking in. Our role is to declare it, announce it, align ourselves to the rule of this king. You have to understand that. Otherwise, we, we go awry. Sometimes we begin to think about our role or maybe we think too much about the church and we th- begin to think our church is the kingdom. No, it's not just alone to our local church. It's much bigger than us, much more significant than us. That's why we're involved in the world. We see that God is at work, that the kingdom is breaking through throughout the world through his spirit and through the gospel. That's what the kingdom is. That's Actually, that could be an entire sermon series in and of itself. It gave me an idea. Maybe uh, the next time we do a topical series, we'll dive deeper into this idea of the kingdom. But I want to get to what does it mean to pray, though? At least that's a surface understanding, maybe something to grasp for. What is the kingdom? It's, a, it's an idea that threads the entire Bible. It's about God's reign, his rule, his redemptive rule coming through the preaching of the gospel, through the Holy Spirit. But what does it mean for us to pray, your kingdom come? This is one of those lines in the Lord's Prayer that does strike fear in my heart. The most, probably. Because this is a very dangerous prayer, individually and profoundly challenging corporately. It's a dangerous prayer because it is a statement that actually kind of requires war. It requires this internal willing to do battle. To use kingdom language or warfare language, it requires you to surrender. It requires you to lay down your crowns. It requires you to get off the throne. That's why it's so dangerous and so scary, actually. The, the, the words that are most commonly used throughout the New Testament isn't surrender. We see the word repentance, but it's the same idea. That's why every time Jesus talks about the kingdom, you see the very first thing he says, like he says in Matthew 4, verse 17, the very first thing he says is, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Because when a king comes and we reign in our lives, it's war. And you have to actually give up and surrender if you want this king. 
He comes to offer good news of how to be brought back into the kingdom of God. But it requires surrender, repentance, submission to the kingdom of God. And that's not just as, as Western Enlightenment people. We tend to want to think about compartmentalized parts of our lives. I have this Sunday life. I have my spiritual life. And then I have this other part of my life. We, we segment things. I have my work life. I have my family life. I have my hobby life. I have my way I spend my money. No, I have my friends. No, it, it, this kingdom is over everything. So you see good coaches come into a team. They don't just talk about how they act during the times that they're practicing and the way that they play during games. It dominates everything in their life. How they spend their time. How they relate to each other off clock when they're not at practice. It dominates everything. It's the same with this kingdom. This is why it's scary. This is why so many of us don't live in light of the kingdom. Because we haven't surrendered. We think this king is just not a king, but a genie to help us the way we want. But no, this is a king that says, no, the way that you are living, you need to lay that down. In the Old Testament, the people of God, uh, this story always strikes me. Um, the people of God are now in the promised land and they see how other nations are being ruled and they see how powerful they are. They have better weapons than they do. They have walls. These people have now just kind of left slavery. So they're not that advanced yet. They're not that significant. They're not military power, the people of God. But they see all these people and how strong they are, how big they are, how big their walls are, how advanced they are. And they say, well, one more thing that they have we really want. They have a king. And they want a king. But God says to them, no, I will be your king. But the people insist, no, we want to be like the nations. And God warns them, if you do that, the kings will tax you. The kings will be against you at times. These are broken people. And then the people, no, we still want a king. And the very first one they pick, who do they pick? Saul. They do a good job selecting leaders, don't they? That's, that's, that's why I think as us, as, as important as it is for have, us to have kingdom values as we participate in whatever, you know, polity and politics we have, whatever country you're coming from, we can never elect something that will bring in the kingdom. It won't. We see that from the very first time the people of God choose a king. God declared that he would be their king, but the people say no. That's why he says, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. What we need is God to reign and have dominion over us. They chose Saul, though they rejected God as king, just like Adam and Eve rejected the word of the king. The people of God reject the Lord as king. We have all, apart from Christ, rejected God as king. That's why the very first thing, if you pray, your kingdom come requires us to surrender, to repent. To say the Lord is king means you have to get off your throne and say you have full reign. You have reign, you have rule, your values, your priorities, your vision is what is actually good. And when I contradict you, God, I'm wrong, not you. To pray your kingdom come is to get off your throne, to stop trying to build your kingdom. And I realized this in my prayers, and this is a constant struggle in my life, starting from when I was a first a Christian to now, and I, I recognize this. It's very possible to pray your kingdom come, but what you mean is God build my kingdom. I recognized this early on in my Christian life. I was praying during my senior year of high school, and I was a new Christian, like being a Christian, it's kind of fuzzy to me now, somewhere between junior and senior years of high school. 
And I was going to university uh, my senior year. I remember praying um, as a new Christian. And like many seniors who have dreams of their college life and career, I was going to university, I was pursuing uh, engineering, like my father honoring the immigrant story, like many of my friends who grew up in Michigan. I remember praying as a new Christian, God, guard my future. Help me to be a good engineer. Help me to have a life that would honor you by being, you know, a good student in school. And those are good prayers. But I was convicted by the word, hearing it preached, somehow reading God's word. God, in his grace, allowed me to see this. I realized I wasn't seeking first his kingdom. I would be saying, your kingdom come. But really, I was just saying, God, here's my blueprints for my life. You bless this. You make this happen. I've already got a great plan for my life. It's your job to make this happen. God, all you need to do is sign off on it. And if you could give me the funds to do it, that'd be great too. Right? <laughs> that's, that's how most of us pray. That's how I pray often. That's actually what started my journey towards ministry. Because I began to realize how much I prayed my kingdom come. And once I realized, no, I need to pray his kingdom come, that means he rules over my time. He rules over my job. He rules over my priorities. He rules over every part. And if I say, here's my life, what would that look like? I still struggle with that today. It's very possible for me to pray, your kingdom come, which all it means is for me to be successful, successful or tons of church to be successful. It's very possible to pray, your kingdom come, and all you mean is God bless the blueprints for my life. That's why I need to surrender too. That's why you probably need to surrender way more than you realize. The more you spend time with these short words, your kingdom come, the more it becomes honest if you're open to the Father that you need to pray a prayer of repentance and surrender. Really often we say your kingdom come, it's about my kingdom of my sovereign self. That's why prayer for so many of us, that's why we give up on it. Because prayer then is just a good luck charm. It's just trying to get what you want. It's just transactional as we're looking at. As Pastor Gabriel looked at last week, it's just like treating God as a vending machine. You, you say certain things, you do certain things, and you expect him to dispense what you've actually paid for. Beatitudes show that Jesus is establishing a kingdom that is radically different, countercultural. He He gives a lot of different contrasting statements in the Beatitudes. If you look at Matthew and you look at Luke, and you see that he gives woes to the rich and he gives blessing to the poor. Why does he say that? How is it woe to the rich and blessing? He actually says the kingdom belongs to those who are spiritually poor. Why is that? Because you can be a religious person. You can be a moral person. You can ask, and many of us do, ask for wealth and comfort and success and all you're doing, even though you're saying the word, your kingdom come, is actually living within the kingdom of your life that you are establishing. And it's not that those things are bad. God asks us to ask for things, as we'll look at throughout this prayer. But when all of the things of our kingdom dominate our prayer life, it reveals you still sit on the throne, and all you're asking of God is to bless your plans because you are still king. That's why I read this weird report this week. 30% of atheists pray regularly. I don't even know what to do with that statement. It's kind of funny. Maybe it makes up because I believe 30% of Christians never pray. 
Maybe that's balancing it out. I don't know. Makes sense, right? They don't believe, but this makes sense then, why atheists pray. Because even though they don't believe in God, they still want things to go their way because they're on the throne. And so it doesn't hurt to ask, right? How many of us as followers of the king still pray like that? Well, we sit on the throne. God, you make this happen. Kingdom people don't pray to get from God alone. They pray to get God himself because that's what we truly need. Praying your kingdom come is the start of something really powerful in your life if you're honest and open with it because you begin to recognize the kingdom is not ultimately about you. It's not that you are insignificant. You are his son, his daughter, his princess, his prince, but ultimately we realize in the kingdom we are not the point. If you're not a Christian yet, and there's always non-Christians here because I believe there are youth here who are like me, uh, my mom became a Christian when I was, I think, around fifth grade, 10. And she dragged me to church, so I had to go. I couldn't say no yet. Uh, or she couldn't say, I, she, I wasn't that annoying yet, I guess. And so by early high school, my mom gave up because I was too annoying. But you're brought here because someone's forcing you to be here. Or maybe, a, you know, you're an adult uh, child, but your mom still wants you to come. And, you know, you, you have honor and you have guilt and you're trying to honor your parents. There's always someone who doesn't quite know Jesus yet. And there's some of us who've been in the church for a long time, believe that we're actually following the king, but we haven't surrendered yet. And you're still needing to experience new life and conversion because all you have is religious following in your life. You don't actually have a king. Here's an invitation. I pray as we're looking, would you join us for the Lord's Prayer? Realize every line here is an invitation to a loving father an invitation to a loving rule of a king. Our Father has provided a way for you to be a son and daughter through Jesus Christ. That in his perfect holiness, as we looked at last week, we hollow his name. He is perfect in his holiness, so he doesn't ignore sin. But you know what? He judged sin in his own son so he could extend forgiveness and grace. That's good news. That's the kind of kingdom he says is at hand, one where the king is willing to lay down his life. Our hope is that in pointing you to Jesus again and again in our church, you would see you need a rescue from the destruction that comes when you sit on the throne of your life. And it may not be that obvious at first because it's very possible to live a, a, a decent life as a citizen, to be, live a respectful life, to live an outwardly good life, a moral life apart from Christ. But it only leads ultimately to destruction because what can defeat death itself? In all the ways we try and rule for good, I pray that you would eventually see that you need to surrender if you want to find fullness and flourishing. If you want to find healing for brokenness, it comes first by surrender, repentance to this king to say that your reign is good. My reign is not. I pray that you would begin to see that this king loves you and is gracious. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've probably repented at least once in your life, hopefully, at the beginning because you repented that you need a savior. But if we regularly are praying, your kingdom come, we recognize repentance is not a one-time thing we did 5, 10, 50 years ago. 
This is something as we're praying your kingdom come, it does battle with the areas of our heart we haven't surrendered yet. We're still in works, we're in progress, where we're surrendering more and more of our life. We also need to surrender and repent. Not the initial repentance of when you became a Christian, but giving and surrendering more of yourself. I pray that you would recognize as you're praying, your kingdom come. You still probably sit on the throne of your life in some area and you refuse to get down. You refuse to lay down your crown. And that's because we live in a culture that so easily compartmentalizes. So we can say and feel good, well, this part of my spiritual life or my church life or my Christian life is good, but then have it not touch other parts of your life. Jesus died for you as a whole person. And when you experience flourishing and blessing in his kingdom is when you surrender all of yourself to him. I, I thought about my prayers for my kids for a second. And how much of my prayers reveal that I still sit on the throne when it comes to my kids. I pray for them often, and I don't use these exact words, but much of my prayers for them have to do with them honoring me, which means not annoying me, <laughs> or them having good things in their life, like being successful. Like we're in a season where there's ridiculous amount of volleyball games from Elias who are running around like crazy and I want her to, to grow physically strong. I want her to be able to use her body in the ways that God has given to her even though she's super short like me. I want her to be awesome at volleyball. Right? I want her to be like that. And I want her to, to have the priorities that are good in this world. But I, I pray, the way I realize I pray for my children reveals that I'm king on the throne of my kids still. Instead of recognizing that no, God sits on the throne of my kids. I'm just a steward. Because I don't want to just pray for them to be successful and healthy. What, what if I prayed that they would discover that God is actually king? And what if I prayed, God, no, I, I don't want just my preferences or my hopes to dictate what they do in their life. What it would mean, just as I initially prayed and was open to the idea of God, do anything with my life. What if I, I realized how, how afraid I am because I don't want to even pray that for my own kids sometimes. This kingdom expands over my kids in that way. Praying your kingdom come means surrendering. If you're a follower of Jesus, there's an aspect of your life where you probably still need to get down from the throne. Also, praying your kingdom come also means being willing to participate where the kingdom of God is at work. I love these two quotes from two different individuals from completely different time periods, but they say the same thing about participation in the kingdom in the Lord's Prayer. St. Augustine said, you should never pray your kingdom come without saying, and Lord, let thy kingdom go deeper in me. J.I. Packer reminds us that to pray thy kingdom come is searching and demanding for one to be ready to add and stand with me. Make me your fully obedient servant. When you pray your kingdom come, it doesn't diminish our role in it. It actually empowers it. When you pray, it actually requires us to actually ask at the end of that prayer, and where do you want me to be in your kingdom work? So let me ask a couple of questions for you as you're considering what it means to pray your kingdom come. That question may be a location question for you. God's kingdom is over the entire earth. There's nowhere that God's kingdom does not touch. Every square inch of this universe is his. That's why part of our vision is so grand. We can't accomplish it 
We want to see gospel transform disciples of all peoples in our city and the world. The world. Maybe that's question of praying your kingdom come for you is, where do you want me in your kingdom, God? I was praying for you this week. My friends who've thought about global mission, moving your life across the world, because you in your heart have burned at one time for unreached people. Maybe this is the question you need to ask again because you stopped asking it. Where in your kingdom, God? Because you are ruling everywhere. Where in your kingdom is he calling you to participate? Maybe it's a how question for you, not just a location question. Maybe it is surrendering your vocation Maybe it's surrendering your time. Maybe it's surrendering the rhythms of your life to prioritize how you will participate. Because what you have done is on the throne of your life, schedule this so that there is no participation in the kingdom of God. It doesn't actually mean dramatic changes at times. One of the reasons I love being a part of the volleyball rhythms of my kids is it allows me to be located with people who do not know Jesus is that for me to pray your kingdom come there does not mean just I'm praying for them to win, but praying God, as I'm connecting with this person who does not know you yet, let me be a light to this person. Give me opportunity to declare Christ to them. How? How are you called to participate in this kingdom? Let me bring this all together. This I preach forever, but I want us to pray and respond. Let me bring this all together. When you pray your kingdom come, Realize it doesn't mean that you can't ask for things. We're going to start asking for things in a couple weeks. Give us today our daily bread. You are called to ask boldly, to knock. God wants to pour blessing on his children. But I, I do think we need to evaluate the way that we're praying. And this is hard work. Can you do the work of recognizing where it is that you're praying from a position where you're still on the throne? Can you do that work? Wrestle? Recognize that when you're praying your kingdom come, all you're asking is God, bless the blueprints I'm giving to you instead of saying, God, your kingdom. Would you do that work? Would you do that spiritual battle that exists in your heart right now? Second, it, this kingdom prayer should shape how zealous and how fervent we are in prayer. Because we're praying for something we cannot do on our own. We cannot change hearts. We don't transform cities. We don't bring death back to life. Jesus does that. And so I, I, I truly believe when you pray your kingdom come, if that is the fervent prayer of the people of God in any outpost, any local church, you will see power break through. And when you don't see it, it's because we are still sitting on the throne when we stop asking for him. When we start trusting our ways, our strategies, our ability, our might, our will. And so, church, we, we have places of prayer in our church that are informal, like praying in your community groups, your life groups, your growth groups your discipleship groups, you, you have informal friend, you have friendships that exist, that prayer can happen. We have, a, as a church, praying for our, our, our mission work. We have 
We're going to call a, a prayer gathering later on this year to gather us. I truly believe where there's lack of power together to pray your kingdom come. That's why we cannot do what God is calling us to do. It's not because of money. It's not because of how challenging it is in San Francisco. It's because we're not praying your kingdom come. And I cannot, I'm just saying that not to guilt you, but recognizing just our own limitation, my limitation. Our church will only be as powerful as our willingness to surrender in prayer and desperation to saying, you are king. We want your kingdom come. Last, you know, when we see the kingdom of this world, there's so many problems, right? You look at SF Chronicle, you just see all the problems, right? Doom loop, all those things. I think rather than complaining, attacking, or even despairing, maybe that ought to drive us to pray, your kingdom come. Would you take a moment just to allow for silence and the Holy Spirit to speak in that silence before we continue on? Holy Spirit, speak. Search our hearts, Spirit, so that we could really pray your kingdom come in our lives, in our church, in our city, in this world. We long to be able to pray, be able to participate in your kingdom come. To Jesus' glory, amen.